Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number seven of the Lays of Beleriand. Good evening and welcome. So, tonight, um, well, okay. So, according to the original schedule, tonight we're supposed to go through Canto 14. I have to admit that I find that as unlikely as you probably do that we'll make it all the way through Canto 14. So, let me just start off from the top saying, I think I'm going to add an extra week to the Ways of Balerian class. I hope that this is okay with everybody. Um, but I don't want to just, like, radically shortchange everything. Um, so just that's what we're going to do. We're going to go... Uh, tonight, it is my hope to get Baron and Luthien well on their way to Angband, but I have no real aspirations to do the scene with Car either with Karkaroth or with uh, uh, with Morgoth. So we'll we'll save those for next time. Um, so that means instead of the one more class, we'll have two more classes. So we'll do tonight and next time to finish through Canto 14. And then the week after that, we'll wrap up with the final stuff, looking at when he comes back and um, uh, sort of returns to the poem much later. We'll look at uh, some of C.S. Lewis's commentary. Uh, we'll, so we'll do those sections uh, two weeks then from now instead of next week. So we'll, we'll, extend, we'll extend everything by one week. So I hope that's uh, I hope that's okay with everybody. All right, um, two quick announcements, both things that I've mentioned before, but I just wanted to remind you first. Don't forget, uh, if you live anywhere in the uh, greater uh, east coast of America area, um, October Saturday, October third, uh, the Mid Atlantic. Uh, what was it? Mid-Atlantic Imaginative Fiction Symposium or something like that. Anyway, mid-moot. Um, uh, this, you know, this gathering that we're planning, which is going to be really fun. You'll get to meet uh, you get to meet me, you'll get to meet Verlin Flieger, you'll get to meet Carl Hostetter. It's going to be an, an awesome time in a great environment. Um, we're hoping even, hoping even, we're seeing about this, but we may even be able to get copies of the book in advance. It'd be pretty cool. But anyway, so we're we're definitely excited uh, about Midmoot in October. Um, it's super cheap. It only, only costs 10 bucks. So, uh, you know, if you're anywhere in the area and can pop in for the Saturday, 10 bucks. Uh, awesome day of Tolkien discussion and meeting, meeting and hanging out with really cool people. So, um, just a really fun opportunity. Again, that's Saturday, October 3rd. Uh, further details and registration information can be found at mythguard.org and then go to the events tab and you'll find it right there. So, um, so anyway, definitely wanted to remind you guys about that, which I announced last time for the first time. And also, this week is your last chance to register for our fall classes before they start. Our fall semester begins on Monday. Uh, getting really excited, pulling everything together here. Um, great enrollment this semester, a whole bunch of people signing up for classes. So, you know, I hope that you will take advantage of the opportunity. Uh, these are really fun classes. John Garth's class on Tolkien's Wars in Middle-earth, looking at, you know, if you've ever wanted to study in a really thoughtful and respectful uh, uh, you know, sort of intellectually sound way, the interaction between, you know, Tolkien's life and his work, especially in his early years, uh, you know, his sort of uh, formative adult years, 
um, uh, this is really, you know, just just the best kind of opportunity to study that kind of stuff. Um, introduction to Anglo-Saxon with Mike Drought and our own Nelson Goring. It's going to be a fantastic class. Zero to Beowulf in one semester. It'll be awesome. And then, of course, Amy Sturgis's Star Wars class. Just a just an absolute uh, an absolute must for anybody who is at all excited about the film coming out this uh, uh, this year. So, uh, anyway. Our, those are our three classes starting starting next week, so uh, do take a look at those. Again, go to MythGuard.org, and you can find further information and how to enroll for any of those classes. So I hope that you guys will all check that stuff out. Now, um, looking ahead at what I'm going to be trying to do today, I, I want to, of course, begin... Um, Right where where I said last time we were going to begin, that is with Felagund and Thu. I want to look at uh, you know I'm a I'm a big fan um, of that Canto of Canto Seven. Um, looking at uh, both, I just I'm a big fan of Felagund's character at all, really. Um, but in looking at the conflict between Felagund and Thu, and I really had to kind of restrain myself. I, I you know I kind of wanted to put almost the entire of can entirety of Canto Seven up passage by passage, which I knew would just be mad. Um but uh but anyway, after we look at in the context of looking at Felagund and Thu, one of the th- questions that I want us to have in mind, and I'm gonna kinda jump backwards and look at um an earlier passage as well in this context, is thinking about magic. Magic is a fascinating subject in Tolkien and a lot of people um ask about that. Um um, lots of people are kind of, uh, you know, will, will sort of uh, are interested to think more about to- uh, magic in Tolkien's world. How exactly does Tolkien depict magic? How does magic work in Middle Earth exactly? Um, it's a little hard to uh, it's a little hard to tell uh, in many ways from the Lord of the Rings. Um, I would actually say to anybody who you know really wants to sort of see an explicit example of magic. It's hard even to point to clear examples. I mean, you've got things like Gandalf's fireworks, um, both, you know, the celebratory fireworks uh, set off at Bilbo's party um, and the sort of uh, more impromptu fireworks set off uh, uh, in Chapter 6 of The Hobbit with the wargs. You know, there are moments like that, of course, where we see clear magic going on, Gandalf lighting the fire on the slopes of Carathras and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, but apart from that, you know, elf magic, for instance, you know, you think about um, you think about the kind of magic that Sam wishes he could see. Sam says that he's heard old tales about magic, um, and he's always wanted to see some magic done like he's heard of in the old tales. Right? What old tales has Sam heard exactly? Um, what? Uh, where do we see this magic being done that Sam is talking about? Well, I have a theory, and my theory is that it's here in this poem, actually. Uh, and um, and again, I would you know for for my money, the clearest illustration of magic in action um, in Tolkien's Middle Earth works uh, is um, uh, is 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 here in the Lay of Lathian, both in chapter uh, in chapter seven with Thu and Felagund, and then also in uh, Canto Nine. Um, with Luthien, but also earlier in Canto Five with Luthien, um, and yes, yeah, I I just noticed Sharon that I just kind of tossed in that uh, a little qualifier in his Middle Earth works because of course Sharon is reminding me that there's there's there are magic spells performed uh, in Roverandum, which is very true, which is very true. But 
um, within the context of Middle Earth. Uh, that is to say, within his mythology, because of course things like um, you know his short stories, which he never sort of meant to be part of this world at all, which which were really just completely different things. Things like Rover Random and uh, you know uh, Farmer Giles of Ham and Swith of Swith, Smith of Wooten Major uh, and those kinds of things he was sort of less consistent in thinking through things because he wasn't envisioning them as part of this picture, whereas any of these stories that were attached to his mythology have um, sort of a, a, a more kind of weight to them. Um, and we can see from the Book of Lost Tales project on, we can see him really starting to synthesize and see how these stories kind of all can hang together. Um, of course... I casually mentioned these those other stories which really are meant to have nothing to do with his mythology. I would, of course, kind of include The Hobbit in that category, too, originally, anyway. Um, but that's a discussion for a later point, like maybe in an hour or so. Um, so anyway, so I do want to pause um, to go back to actually not just be looking at Thu versus Felagon, to be thinking about magic and the operation of magic in particular. And then... I want to shift, and you see how long I'm taking even to just give my outline. Uh, you can tell I'm unlikely to be enormously efficient, but um, but then at the end I want to be really focusing on that theme of release from bondage, right? What does Lay of Lathian mean, and what sense is this, the song, the story of release from bondage? And um, uh, I think from the rescue of Baron through their, um, uh, their trip to... Um, through their trip to, to, to Angband, we can see this kind of coming up in several different ways. There are, of course, many literal times in which people are held captive and then set free, right? Um, you know, Luthien, um, well, Baron when he's taken before Thingol, Luthien when she is kept up in the, uh, it, when you know, she's kept up in the tree in Hirolorn, um, Luthien again when she is taken captive by Kelogorm and Kurifin, Baron when he's taken captive by Thu. So there's plenty of literal captivity and literal uh, settings free uh, in this poem. But of course, I'm not. I, I think just when we when we read the rest of it, there's there's plenty of other reason to think that of course this story is much is interested in much more than the purely literal imprisonment and release that we see repeated, you know, uh, as a motif throughout this story. So I want to be looking a, li a little bit more closely at the scenes, especially at the end, where Baron is trying to convince Luthien uh, to stay behind him when he tries to leave her behind. Um, so I have no ambition to get further than that tonight, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how well I do. Um, okay. Uh, let's... Uh, Let's go back to Felagund uh, here. Okay. Um, my subtitle here, of course, Dressing Tower Nafu in Fashion. Uh, of course, I'm thinking about Sam uh, telling Frodo that they had better dress Mordor fashion as they're in Mordor, right? And of course, we can see, you know, Sam and Frodo obviously are not the first ones to do that. Um, uh, anyway, okay. The poisoned spears, the bows of horn, the crooked swords their foes had borne they took, and loathing each him clad in Angband's raiment, foul and sad. They smeared their hands and faces fair with pigment dark, the matted hair all lank and black from goblin head they shore, and joined it thread by thread with gnomish skill. 
As each one leers at each dismayed about his ears, he hangs it noisome, shuddering. Then Felagon dispel did sing of changing and of shifting shape. Their ears grew hideous and agape, their mouths did start, and like a fang each tooth became, as slow he sang. Their gnomish raiment then they hid, and one by one behind him slid, behind a foul and goblin thing that once was elven fair and king. Okay. Um, uh, what do you see here? What do we notice here? In the, and of course, one of the things that I do have in the back of my mind here again is that here we see magic being done right? Um, here's a bit of elvish magic. Uh, I, again, I'm not, I, I can't promise that this is the, you know, I'm not saying I, 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 this is definitely the story that Sam heard that he was referring to, but it's certainly the kind of thing seems to be, um, you know, a bit of elf magic. Um, uh, so, yeah, Steve, there is a lot of shape-shifting, uh, in, uh, in tonight's readings, isn't there? It seems to be, it seems to be definitely a major thing. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, Sharon has a good question. She says, what does it mean that Felagun can do bodies, but he can't do hair? Yeah, I, the, notice the combination here. It's one of the things that's really striking to me, right? I mean, you think if, if Felagund is going to sing a song, or he's going to sing a spell of changing and of shifting shape, um, if he is going to... Uh, now, is it true... You know, what, what exactly is happening there? Right? Is he forming an illusion or is he actually altering their shape? Um, you know, I'm not quite sure exactly what kind of spell um, is being uh, is being done here. Again, is it their perception that's being altered, or is it uh, is it um, is it their actual form? I don't really know. But um, but of course, the really striking thing is that the paragraph before that we get this description of the much more mundane costuming that goes on, right? Um, not only are they actually, um, you know, joining the orc hair to their own hair so that, you know, they've got the sort of, you know, nasty orc hair hanging down um, around, you know, the noisome, uh, which is a, a, a not a not a great word for hair. You know you're having a bad hair day when your hair can be described as noisome. Um uh, but anyway, so you know they've got the they've got the noisome hair hanging down around their ears, um, which they're joining thread thread by thread with gnomish skill. Right? Is there elf magic involved in there? Well, if there is, it's a different kind. Right? They're not singing spells; they're just very skillful. Right? So uh, you know, presumably, you know, men on their own would have a harder time pulling this off. Right? Um, the elves are just you know the gnomes with their gnomish skill are. I think just sort of more adroit at doing this kind of thing. But notice there's even simple things, right? Not only are they actually taking the armor and weapons, right? So as to, as to disguise their clothes, you know, to, to put on the clothes of the enemy, but they're even smearing their faces and hands with dark pigment, right? So again, we have this very mundane uh, disguising of them. And then Felagund sings, right? Um, why? Well, their ears. Notice it doesn't say what the elf ears looked like. How pointy are the elf ears? We don't really know, but they don't look like orc ears in any case. They're, not, they're in wh Whatever their shape may be, they're insufficiently hideous, right? So he has to make their ears hideous. He has to make their mouths agape, right? So he's changing the whole look of their face um, 
and their teeth, right, so that their teeth become sharp like fangs. Um, those are the things that Felagund accomplishes with his song. So their 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 pigment, their hair, their clothes, their weapons, all of these things they have uh, they have disguised mechanically. The actual sort of the face, the physiognomy—that's what's being changed by Felagund. So it is a really interesting kind of uh, kind of combination. Um, and I don't, uh, I don't know. I mean, Sharon asks, you know, it's just, you know, we have uh, Luthien making her cloaking device from her hair. Is, is there something special about hair? You know, that Felagund can't do hair. Uh, you know, Thingol uses, or uh, not Thingol, certainly. Uh, um, uh, Luthien uses, um, you know, sort of hair as a medium. Um, I don't really know. Um, yeah, Steve uh, Holly is wondering if this is uh, sort of the opposite of a glamour. Instead of turning into something fair, uh, it's turning uh, turning it into something foul. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no comparable word. <laughs> there's no, there's no, there isn't really an opposite of glamour exactly, at least that I can think of. Um, but um, but yeah, and Nancy, you're right to point out that, of course, it is gnomish skill, and, and I think we can take this in a couple ways, right? On the one hand, uh, again, it just does seem to refer to the mechanical skill of the elves, but at, but also it's um, uh, um, there's it's 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 uh, craftsmanship, right? Um, you know, and where exactly the line between you know, craftsmanship, art, and magic fall um, is often pretty... It's one of the things that's so hazy about magic in Tolkien's world, right? Um, So, you know, is there magic... You know, is there something that, you know, that Sam Gamgee would call magic going on in the joining thread by thread with gnomish skill? Um, I don't really... um, I don't really know. Sue Gifford wonders if Felgun needs the dress-up piece as a kind of jumpstart, that he can't do the magic from scratch, or is it that it's too hard to do all of that? I mean, you know, that if he's making... I don't know. I mean, are we supposed to see this as a limitation? Um, are we supposed... I, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's interesting to me, though. It's interesting to me that they go here at all. I mean, Sam and Frodo, you know dress up as perfect little orcs uh, because they have no other options, right? Um, it's their only chance to blend in. You'd think that if Felagun could just make it happen, you know, maybe he needed a model, right, before he could, but but he seems not to, he seems to need, uh, he seems to need more than a model. Josiah McCoy is uh, recalling Gandalf saying, I cannot burn snow. Uh, maybe we have a parallel here. Um, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, you know, Gandalf, uh, although he can make a magical fire, still needs fuel to work with. Maybe, uh, you know, he need. Uh, maybe Felagun needs the basic orcish template uh, in order to uh, to make the final orcish touches work. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, Matthew. Uh, Hersenroder says he sees it as the spell. Spell will be more effective with the physical stuff thrown in. Um, Probably, probably. I mean, again, that seems that seems that seems quite likely. Um, but um, yeah, but I mean, I think. What do you think about the actual spell that he sings, though? Do you think that he, um, 
that he changes the appearance or he actually changes their form. I think it's actually changing their appearance, of changing and of shifting shape. Their ears grew hideous, and their mouths did start agape. And like a fang, each tooth became. Right? Not appeared, but became. It sounds like he's actually changing them physiologically with his spell. Um, I get, that's, that's how I take that. I could be wrong, but that's how I take that. Um, uh, yeah, Sarah King, I think they're joining the threads to their own hair. At least that's how I understood it. Um, yeah, the matted hair, all lank and black from Goblin Head, they shore and joined it thread by thread with gnomish skill. I think, Sarah, I guess I was assuming that they were joining it to their own hairs. Um, uh, but, um, or I suppose they could be joined to each other like a wig. Um, yeah. Guess I was making an assumption there, Sarah. I was envisioning that. But, uh, um, yes. Karita says, I was imagining them sewing weaves. So was I, Karita, I think. Uh, something like that, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Brian says maybe he only uses the song for things they can't change as easily as the others. Brian, it certainly seems like that, right? That um, the use of magic to change their faces is a, is, is a necessity, right? Because they can fake everything else, but they can't actually change the... I mean, no matter how much they might make their pigment look like orcish pigment, their their bone structure is still going to be like an elf rather than like an orc when they're when they're actually confronted with somebody. Um, so it, that does seem a necessity, and if we can conclude from that that um, it is only in order to fill the necessity, you know, again, that he's either using his power sparingly, there does seem to be a finite quantity of power that he has to do things. We know this because later on he says that he expends it all, right? Um, he, he, he didn't damage himself physically in breaking his chains. He says that he used up all of his power, you know, all of his spirit in breaking out of the chains. Um, so there do seem to be limits to this kind of thing. Of course, we, we remember Gandalf using the word spent, right? That he, uh, as how he feels after he, um, did his thing up at the top of the stairs in the chamber of Mizarbo. Um So that, that, that certainly seems to be, um, uh, that certainly seems to be kind of an issue here. Um, James Libach points out that Luthien needed particular components for her spell. And James, we're going to come back for that. That's, that's the scene that I want to, that I want to look at later on. Um, maybe Felwagen needed these material components for his illusion too. That seems entirely possible. Seems entirely possible. Again, that's what's so much fun about these passages, because it's so rare that we get a moment like this where we have, uh, again, I, I keep coming back to Sam's words there in Lothlorien, right? He says, you know, there's magic all around, but you never see anybody doing it, right? You, that's a kind of a fair description of the whole Lord of the Rings, right? All through Middle-earth, there's, there's magic all over the place, but you never see anybody doing it, almost never see anybody doing the magic, right? Um, in this poem in several places we actually see somebody doing magic and so it's really kind of tempting to sort of pause and 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 like i know this might seem like a very pedantic discussion i'm having here about the, the you know the mechanism of how the magic works um but i can't help it it's interesting because we almost never see this it's like in this moment we're kind of not quite seeing behind the curtain but at least we're seeing Tolkien depict something which he generally avoids in many other places um 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Josiah uh, McCoy asks another really good follow-up question. He says, given what Galadriel says to Sam, um, that is about not quite fully understanding what he means by the word magic, would the elves really have drawn a sharper distinction between the spell and the craft? They use pigment for faces, wigs for hair, songs for ears. Um, yes... I mean, yes, Josiah, I'm sure that, you know, Feligund and, and the other uh, of the elves there might perhaps think that the distinction that we would draw between the merely mechanical um, disguise elements and the obviously magical dis- disguise elements, that perhaps we're making a big fuss about nothing um, uh, or kind of missing the point in making that distinction. Um and I do think, uh, you know, as I said, gnomish skill seems to me a fairly evocative phrase in that way that could mean much more than just, you know, highly advanced manual dexterity, right? It, it's likely to be connected with gnomish craftsmanship and therefore with what Sam Gamgee would undoubtedly call magic. Um, but... Um, um, yeah, yeah, Arthur makes a really good distinction, which is, I think, a really important one to keep in mind, especially since this is exactly, these are exactly the terms that Tolkien uses when he talks about both elves and about magic in On Fairy Stories. Arthur says, magic is generally understood, that is, I assume, Arthur, you mean, like, by people, you know, like, by 21st century people, you know, by readers, as a supernatural way of doing things, something mystical and incomprehensible. Exactly. Something miraculous. Something outside the natural order. But the elves trained with the Valar. Would they even think in these terms? For them, it's not magic. It's just the way the world works. Exactly. Remember the distinction that Tolkien makes when he says that uh, um, people sometimes think about elves as supernatural and he kind of turns that around and says, no, actually, if anything, elves are more natural than we are. It's not that they violate you know, the natural order, the natural world, world, but that they're more closely in touch with the natural order than we are. If anything, we are, to them, supernatural. Um, and by that, I take Tolkien to mean that he's referring to the souls of men um, and our connection to God and to heaven beyond. Um, that's something that the elves don't have, what they do have is a greater connection, a very different kind of connection with the natural world. And so nothing they do is precisely supernatural in the way that we would tend to use that word supernatural um, when we're talking about magic or miracles or things like that. Um, And so, Arthur, that is another way of thinking about the kind of continuity between craft and art and magic, right? Um, It's not... uh, it's not a way of... It's not sort of a supernatural mechanism that is exploited in order to make... Oops, sorry. Uh, no, we're not meeting the necromancer yet. Almost. Um, it's not a supernatural mechanism that is exploited uh, in order to create changes in the natural world. It's a part of interacting with the natural world. Um, 
Yeah, Nancy says uh, supernatural only as in superlatively natural. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, Sarah Sarah King asks, so instead of magic, we could call it, what, elf science? Well, not exactly science, because science is about about learning. I mean, um, you know, that's what... um, that's what science means. The word science means knowledge. Um, you know, it's about gaining knowledge about things. Um, uh, yeah, my, it's Michael. I agree. It's more. It's more. More like art than science. I would say that is less. Less abstract and clinical. Um, you think about the kind of distance that's involved in science, right? You have to, the kind of objectivity uh, and the, the sort of distance that has to be established between the scientist and his object of study, right? That seems alien to the elf world as Tolkien depicts it. Um, but art, art is very much, um, very much uh, more in sort of line there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, but, uh, okay, a couple people, um, Carita and Arthur are both, um, are both talking about... Uh, okay, so Carita says, most highly honed skills seem like magic to the unskilled, and uh, Arthur is recalling uh, Clark's um, quotation that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Sam sees magic and Galadriel sees skill. No, I, I mean, sure, yes, to an extent, but I, I don't think it's... I don't think it works sort of in a spectrum in that way, exactly. Because, again, it's it's about art, too. Um, it's not about... To say... To think about it that way implies that, at least theoretically... You know, a human who practiced really, really hard could have a skill which would be like to gnomish skill, and therefore would be something which, like Sam Gamgee, would call magic. But I don't think so. I think there's a difference in kind. It's not just a question of degree, um, even if the degree is one of is one of skillfulness. Um, there seems to be a difference in kind here as well, um, and. The um, yeah, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to avoid just constantly going back to the Lord of the Rings for illustrations because, of course, I don't simply want to lump in what he's doing and saying here probably in 1928 with what he you know was writing a couple decades later uh and in a and in a different place um yeah yeah um 
<laughs> There's so much to talk about here, and I'm so getting sidetracked from Canto 7. But that's okay. We've gone here, let's explore this a little bit more. Okay. I would argue that there is a fundamentally different thing at play in the Song of Felagund here. Then Felagund a spell did sing of changing and of shifting shape. Their ears grew hideous, and agape their mouths did start, and like a fang each tooth became as slow he sang. That there's a difference in kind between that and the joining of hair thread by thread with gnomish skill. They may both have... They both, they may both be a manifestation of something which Sam would consider magic. Goadriel might not... might think that there's no special difference between the two of them. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, but it's possible, I suppose. But I still don't think it's the same thing. Um... Um, think about the, the uh, several of you are pointing to people like uh, like Saruman, um, and you know, and, and possibly, uh, yeah, yeah, Saruman. Uh, uh, as an example of a sort of more laborious kind of magic, more sort of science and engineering oriented kind of magic. Yes. But again, I, I would say there's a difference in kind here between Saruman's attempt to make a ring of power and Felagun's song. That song, singing, you know, singing a spell of changing and of shifting shape. Um, uh... Carita says, is it is it interesting that Felgund is the only one singing and doing magic? Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, the other gnomes don't join in, right? Um, this seems to be a thing that Felagund has the power to do because of who he is. Um, yeah, yeah. Let me move on for now. As I say, we're going to come back to this. Hang on to these ideas. We'll come back again. I want to go back and I want to look at Luthien spells, the ones with the material components and all that stuff. Um, so we'll come back to this stuff again. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm kind of pausing, because I want to look forward. I want to, I want to leap forward to that. But we're not quite there yet. And I want to look at Felagund and his song with Thu as well. So let's... Um, let's Let's gather more uh, more data here, and then we'll return to the magic question uh, in a little bit. Okay. Now let's meet the necromancer. This is a big deal, of course, right? Um, and this is always a moment, and it, it's a moment that should jump out at Tolkien readers when they get to this part of the poem, because we have here the introduction of a major character, right? This is... I would argue that this passage is really the birth of Sauron, 
right? Um, Sauron, as we as not quite as we will come to know him later on, but getting there. Um, you know, um, you can say in the Lay of Lathian, you know, not the Lay of Lathian. You can say in Book of Lost Tales that Tavildo, Prince of Cats, who plays sort of the role, the parallel, you know, the role that's parallel to Thu's role is sort of the original version of Sauron, but I think in any real sense, that's just kind of silly, right? It's not that, you know, t- Sauron doesn't look anything like Tavildo, Prince of Cats, and I don't just mean that in a superficial way. That is, it's clearly, that's clearly a case of one character being simply replaced by another, and the role in which he played in the overall narrative, that is the role of keeping Baron a captive, is now being given to a new character, and that new character is the one that's going to grow into Sauron. So Tavildo, Prince of Cats, um, isn't really, you know, I think, not really an imaginative forebear of, of, of Sauron. Thu plainly is. Um, and in a pretty direct lineage, uh, as we'll see. Now in that hill was the abode of one most evil, and the road that from Beleriand thither came he watched with sleepless eyes of flame. Men called him Thu, and as a god in after days beneath his rod bewildered bowed to him, and made his ghastly temples in the shade. Not yet by men enthralled adored, now was he Morgoth's mightiest lord, master of wolves, whose shivering howl forever echoed in the hills, and foul enchantments and dark sigildry did weave and wield. In glamoury that necromancer held his hosts of phantoms and of wandering ghosts, of misbegotten or spell-wronged monsters that about him thronged, working his bidding dark and vile, the werewolves of the wizard's isle. Uh, Karita asks, do we ever see him do any necromancing? Nope. That was it. That was it. Um, That passage right there is the only real justification for calling him the necromancer at all. Um, that business about, you know, that the, the use of the word necromancer there in line 2074, and the reference to him holding go- hosts of phantoms and of wandering ghosts. Um, that's that's it. Pretty much. He's pr- predominantly associated, Thu is predominantly dos- associated with werewolves, not with ghosts and with the spirits of the dead. Um, but there's the... Uh, there's the there's the necromancy bit. Arthur says Gorlim's wife's ghost was summoned up by Sauron in the published Silmarillion. Yes, not here, right? Um, in the Lay of Lathian, uh, Gorlim's wife's shade was presumably, according to the tradition that was handed down among the gnomes, not according to uh, you know the first the sort of the the narrative as it goes through. Um, in Gorlim's discussion with with Morgoth himself, um, but again, Morgoth's probably lying about that. Um, anyway, it was Morgoth who did that. Sauron is the one who is placed in that role in the published Silmarillion, right? So we do see perhaps Arthur him sort of fitting in that connection. Um, yeah, Josiah was asking again if Ilanel in the later version counts as necromancy. You know, Josiah, I don't know that I would. I mean, you know, it's like. Next, it's like first cousins with necromancy because he's a spirit of the dead. But there's no indication that the shade that he sees is actually the shade of Ilanel. That there's any you know sort of legitimate necromancy going on. It's just an illusion, right? As far as we can tell. So, um, so yeah, I don't actually know that there's any reason to think of uh, to 
to think of that. Um, Sharon, it is weird to, to that that reference to him uh, being uh, worshipped as a god in ghastly temples um, is really, really interesting. And what I am most interested in there is the glimpse that we get. Like I said, this is the birthplace of you know, I, I consider this passage the birthplace of Sauron. Okay, Not only because we can begin to see some elements associated with Sauron that he will never lose. Most notably, of course, everybody notices the sleepless eyes of flame, right, with which he watches the road. Um, so that, that, that certainly is going to be a lingering characteristic of Sauron's down the road. But that it's that God reference, right? Men called him Thu, and as a god in after days, beneath his rod bewildered bowed to him and made his ghastly temples in the shade. Okay, what does that mean exactly? What after days are we talking about? In the context of the mythology as it currently stands here in the late 20s, the after days have to refer to after the fall of Morgoth, right? And we think back to the Book of Lost Tales and to the, you know, sort of patchy end of the Book of Lost Tales and the sort of you know, the, the the scraps that Christopher Tolkien was able to kind of toss us about where his father's thinking seemed to be headed in the end of Lost Tales, both at the beginning and where his thought was originally heading and where his thought shifted to at the end. It, it all, as you recall, it gets quite complicated at that point because um, he didn't finish the thing. But, but there was clearly, okay, Morgoth was going to be bound. That happens, right? So the the war with the elves who return to Middle-earth and fight the war against Morgoth and defeat him, and Morgoth is chained. But then there's still history after that. And that history incorporates still sort of the the downward slide and the fading of the elves, and bad stuff still has... It's pretty clear that although Morgoth has been chained, it's not like peace and harmony and you know, uh, uh, unending joy has come to Middle-earth, right? That's plainly not the case. So, we see him, but he had never envisioned, there was never, um, I mean, unless I'm forgetting something, never in any of those scraps or thoughts that Tolkien had about how the story was going to end, there was never a central antagonist. There was never a successor to Morgoth that rose after Morgoth's um, chaining Explicitly, that is, you know, we, so we've never before had, um, we've never before had that uh, that explicit successor figure. Here we do, and again, this seems to be the first place where that idea has come up. Okay, so there's still a lot of bad stuff going on in the world, even after Morgoth is chained. This guy, Thu, he's the one who's going to be sort of at the heart of the. He, he's going to be a ringleader of that. He's going to be. You know, the second generation bad guy after Morgoth is enchained. This seems to be um, this seems to be the idea there. Um, Brian Dimmick asks a great question. Is there still the idea that the first stage is the earlier history of our world? Yes. In fact, that idea was much stronger, much more explicit in these early days of Tolkien's thought than it became later on. Um, that concept becomes more and more vague as time goes on. Um, that is, like you think, in the Hobbit, he refers to the fact that this took place long ago. That you barely, you can barely ever see hobbits anymore, right? Because uh, you know we make sounds like elephants uh, coming along, which they can hear a mile off. Right? You know, you get references like that. In the Lord of the Rings, 
you um, you know there's 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 very little exp- there's very little to tie it to anything within our history, other than the references in sort of the framing material that it takes place in the you know the northwest of the old world, vaguely somewhere, right? Um, it was much less vague, and it was very geographically determinate in the earlier versions. Um, when we have England, in particular cities of England, and uh, particular, you know, the 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 Heng- Hengist and Horsa, you know, the famous figures in the Saxon invasion of England, um, you know, in the beginning of the Anglo-Saxon period. Um, our characters in the story, right, are are related to people like, uh, um, uh, like Arendo, or you know, I mean, that's that's it's 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 very very much tied at particular moments in Earth history. That's part of the original conception. So absolutely, Brian, um, it is safe for us to think about that. But but I would qualify Brian. He doesn't talk about the first stage. That phrasing doesn't come in until later. Um, there is not a first, second, and third age of this ancient history. There's the ancient world of the Eldar, of the elves, and then there's our world. Our world extending back through, you know, the Anglo-Saxon period. Um, you know, the Anglo-Saxons, of course, are the beginning of the modern world. You know, we don't call that the modern world anymore, but again, compared to the ancient history of the elves, all that stuff, you know, uh, of, you know, sort of recorded English history is all the modern world in comparison. Um, so, so it's all pre-modern, but it has explicit links to that. Um, okay, okay, good. Yeah, Yana, exactly. Tevildo was certainly not going to be Morgoth's successor. Absolutely not. Um, um, and, and again, you know, Yana, that's a, that's, a, that's a really wonderful point. Again, those of you who are in the Book of Lost Tales class will remember. And I hope those of you who weren't in the Book of Lost Tales class, I hope I've referred to it often enough to inspire you to want to go back and read the Book of Lost Tales and maybe watch the recordings of those classes. Because, uh, uh, you know, it's real helpful. But anyway, okay, so in the Book of Lost Tales class, we were looking at how specifically that figure, the Tevildo, Prince of Cats figure, um, his role in not only in the story but in the overall mythology was was completely different, right? Rather than being a part of an ongoing story, he became part of this sort of mythic background, but, but that particular kind of myth, that sort of explanatory myth, right? Tevildo was there in part to fight with Huan and explain why dogs and cats hate each other to this very day, right? And why cats and dogs don't get along. Um, explicitly, Tevildo and his thanes and the other cats degenerate and become the cats that we know, you know, that with that now survive into our modern world, and their hearts are still full of darkness and wickedness, and that's why cats are, you know, are so cold and aloof because of the spirit of Morgoth that still lives in their hearts. Remember all of those, uh, all of those, uh, all of those anti-cat sentiments that that Tolkien was shamelessly uh, promulgating uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, again, that's the kind of role that Tevildo plays certainly not as any kind of a link in the future story as a future character, right? Now we have that whole explanatory myth movement of this story, the whole dogs and cats thing, replaced by a figure who is going to have an enduring role, right? And of course, I do not think that at this time Tolkien has any sense that this this seems to me to be a kind of a shot in the dark. As a god in after days beneath his rod... Uh, you know, men bewildered bowed to him. 
and made his ghastly temples in the shade. Is this uh, an explicit anticipation of Numenor? No. No, this is pre-Numenor. Um, he's not done the Numenor story yet. Um, this is pre-Hobbit. This is pre-Necromancer. Uh, that is the Necromancer that we meet in The Hobbit. This is. This seems to me just sort of a shot in the dark. That at this moment, uh, Tolkien seems to kind of come across this question. You know, that Thu seems to have presented himself here as somebody who could be the successor. Somebody who could be the sort of second-string Morgoth, you know, when... Uh, uh, you know, when the when the first string bad guy gets taken out of action, right? Um, and that seems to be the only... And, and when that happens, it would make sense that men in the benighted post-elf days um, are, are, are probably going to, to worship him as a god um, and, you know, make ghastly temples to him. Um, that's, that's doubtless what th- the kind of relationship that Thu would attempt to have with men, and, uh, and, and they, in darkness and ignorance, would probably do that. Um, but, of course, those lines have, through, you know, as the Numenor story develops, as the Third Age of Middle-earth comes into being, those lines end up having a huge afterlife, right, in Tolkien's writings, and which is just one of the things that makes this passage, uh, this passage really cool. I mean, he is, as Carita, as you noticed before, yes, he is indeed using Sigildry, right? Um, uh, uh, Sigildry being a, 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 a very a favorite word of Tolkien, especially in this era. Um, he uses the word sigildry a lot, even if people don't understand what on earth he's talking about when he says that. Um, uh, he got challenged on the word sigildry in one of his other poems, the Errantry poem, and he says, uh, but he, and he, he can immediately quote, no, no, it's used like twice in really obscure Middle English works. So there, it's a real word. Um, <laughs> but he, he sure loved it. Um, I think it's pretty fa- safe to say I would I would bet that Tolkien used the word sigildry more than any other English author ever actually, um, but uh, anyway okay, um, uh, right look oh, this oh yeah uh, Ritual says uh, the are the spell wronged monsters basically cursed creatures that's what it sounds like spell wronged um, something has been done to them against their will right this is not a reflection of them being evil or corrupt, but of, uh, of them, um, uh, but of them uh, being sort of experimented on, right? Um, many of the evil creatures of Morgoth seem to be, in this sense, victims, or at best, creatures, that is, things made by his magic, Rather and by his malignant will, rather than merely things that have been kind of seduced and tempted and have turned themselves to evil, right? Um, so many of the werewolves, you know, not necessarily their fault. Presumably these are wolves who have been corrupted, who have been spell-wronged in some sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, oh, Jordan Sunderland asks, when did Tolkien start on the Numenor story? Um, the day he and C.S. Lewis made that bet, 
Um, have you heard that story? Um, anyone who's read uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy uh, th- that starts with Out of the Silent Planet um, might know the story of the day when C.S. Lewis and, uh, uh, and Tolkien uh, tossed up, as Tolkien says. Um, they decided they were both going to write a story. Um, one of them was going to write a time travel story, and the other was going to write a space travel story. And Lewis drew space, and Tolkien drew time. Um, and Lewis's space travel book became Out of the Silent Planet and grew into the Space Trilogy. Um, Tolkien's time travel book uh, was The Lost Road, which he began and didn't finish. Surprise, surprise, Tolkien didn't finish something. Um, and that was, I mean, it's not distantly removed from this. He was, he was, that was in the 30s. Um, the Lost Road was one of the things with the Lay of Lathian that he sent to his publisher when Alan and Unwin were looking for something for a follow-up to The Hobbit when The Hobbit was doing really well he was like well I have this thing The Lay of Lathian and I have I've started this other thing The Lost Road which he sent to them um but um um, yes, yeah, so, you could look at it, look at the bright side that way. It did eventually turn into the Numenor story, so in a way it was finished. Kind of, kind of. Um, the concept of of time travel um, in The Lost Road, the, I mean, it's really complicated, and I'm not going to get distracted trying to explain that. Um, but um, he carried that on again, um, in the work that's called the Notion Club Papers, and that was written after the Lord of the Rings, so that was substantially later than than the Lost Road. But he's coming back to the same kind of idea. Um, didn't finish that either, but got actually more of it done than he did of the Lost Road. Um, so um, anyway, uh, um, it's uh, it's kind of unorthodox time travel. Yeah, Yana says it's, it seems more like dream vision than time traveling. Yeah, in a sense. It's complicated. Um, but he kind of explores it a little bit more explicitly in the Notion Club papers than he did in The Lost Road. But anyway, neither of those are what we are reading here tonight. Um, but anyway, that's where the that's where the, the Numenor story comes in. So again, but the point is, for Thu, it's not there yet. Right? All that stuff is still not even envisioned yet, so far as we can tell. Um, okay. Um, good, yeah, quick, let's move on. <laughs> what? You know what? Let, me th- let me get to a third slide. Hooray! Okay, here is, um, uh, here is their, um, their interrogation by Thu. Where have ye been? What have ye seen? In elfiness and tears and distress, the fire blowing and the blood flowing, these have we seen, there have we been. Thirty we slew, and their bodies threw in a dark pit, the ravens sit and the owl cries where our swath lies. Come, tell me true, O O Morgoth thralls, what then in elfiness befalls? What of Nargothrond, who reigneth there? Into that realm did your feet dare? Only its borders did we dare. There reigns King Felagund the Fair. Then heard ye not that he is gone, that Kelegorm sits his throne upon? That is not true. If he is gone, then Orodreth sits his throne upon. Sharp are your ears, swift have they got, tidings of realms ye entered not. Um, uh... 
What do you notice here? What do you notice? Thoughts about this passage? On the one hand, I can't help... Um, on the one hand, I can't help but think that this moment, this particular moment, the interrogation by Thu, strikes me as a bit of a failure. It doesn't really work all that well. There's, there's a really odd mixture of cunning and simplicity going on here, right? Um, both sides, both Thu and Felagund, seem unjustifiably dumb in the course of this conversation, right? I mean, first, the one that Christopher Tolkien points out, um, the fact that, you know, when, when they give their disguised names, right, and their disguised names are, um, are, are you know, Dungalef and Nereb, just their real names backwards, and even Christopher Tolkien points out what, a, what an oddly transparent uh, uh, tactic that is, given the context that right there he says the name of King Felagund, just in case you forgot about Dungalef, which I just said my name was. I mean, it seems like okay, that's really, really obvious. Um, and similarly, but Thu appears to buy it because it's, like, too sophisticated for him. Christopher, trying to look on the bright side, says maybe it was too simple for the, you know, over-cunning mind of Thu. Maybe. But, um... Uh, but at the same time, Felagund, not only in sort of the simplicity of his, uh, of, 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 of his fake name, but even, I mean, to be sucked into... You know, that is not true. If he is gone, then Oradreth sits his throne upon. It's like, dude, seriously? Like, that's that's not good method acting by Felagund at all, right? Why would any orc who just by his own story did barely entered the borders of, of, of Nargothrond, why on earth would he know that um, and say that? He seems to sort of respond without thinking. And so, you know, it just... I find the tension of this moment seriously undermined by thinking that both of them should be way smarter than they uh, come across sounding in this passage. Um, but, um, yeah, now Lee Smith says, the sing-song cadence and simplistic rhymes make them sound less intelligent as well. It does have an impact. That is, to me, one of the more interesting elements of this, is that the meter shifts. You notice how the meter shifts? Uh Absolutely. Karita, you have got it. Karita says, uh, Why do I have... It bore me away, wetted with spray in my head. That is, she's thinking of uh, of the, the poem uh, uh, of the sea bell in, um, in The Adventures of Tom Bombadour. Karita, I bet you're actually thinking of Looney, uh, the original version of that poem. Um, and... Um, Karita, uh, is a good reason you're thinking about that, because this does in fact you're thinking about that because uh, you took my Tolkien's poetry class and now have a highly honed ear uh, for Tolkien's use of these cadences notice the characteristic how do these lines differ how do these lines differ how has he shi- I mean Christopher Tolkien mentions he shifts the meter okay yeah how how does he chi- how does he shift the meter um, wh- how's it different What do you notice? Yes, Josiah, that is the primary... Good, James, both of you. Um, Josiah and James Levak both um, 
the rhyming half lines, right? So the, 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 the concept of the lines shifts. It doesn't completely deviate. Yes, it does, actually, completely deviate. I take it back. Um, not in all places. But um, notice they don't even rhyme. They're, they're, the end rhymes go away. Um, what have ye seen? Distress, flowing, been, through, sat, lies, thralls, befalls, there, dare, dare, fair, gone, upon, gone, upon, got, not. We shift back, right, to rhyming, to, to the rhyming couplets, the end rhymes of the lines, at come tell me true, O Morgoth's thralls, right? That's the moment where we shift back to the, but before that, in elfiness and tears and distress, the fire flowing and the blood, fire blowing and the f- blood flowing. Um, notice how we have not only uh, internal rhyme, uh, now again, abandoning the end rhyme for internal rhyme, but also um, the notice the play with alliteration as well. It's not just alliteration. It's, um, again, the fire blowing and the blood flowing. Notice how you've got not just the internal rhyme of blowing and flowing, but the transposition of the initial consonants, right? Fire blowing, blood flowing, right? Um, these have we seen, there have we been. Um, it's, 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 there's, there's, it's a very different kind of verse. It's also a very different meter. And Karita, this is what your ear was noticing as you were reading it, as I was reading it through, right? Um, the rest of the poem, if we just go back for a minute. Um, Men called him Thu, and as a god in after days beneath his rod, bewildered bowed to him and made his ghastly temples in the shade. Iambic tetrameter, relatively regular. There's some variations. I know there's some irregularities um, put into it, but it's iambic. This is not iambic tetrameter. It does not go bum 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 bum. In elfiness, okay, and tears and distress. The fire blowing and the blood flowing. These have we seen. There have we been. There it is, Karita. That's the loony meter right there. These have we seen. There have we been. That's exactly how loony sounds like with the two half lines with the stress, unstressed, unstressed, stressed pattern. Um, that's why you were thinking of that line, Karita. Um, Thirty we slew and their bodies threw in a dark pit. The ravens sit and the owl cries where our swath lies. Very much more irregular meter. Um, with again, the, the the driving force of this is not the regular rhythm of the lines, but it's the construction of the lines, right? Um, that is the half lines, the internal rhymes, the alliterations, and sort of word plays that are going on there. Um, that's the uh, that's the whole driving force of these lines. So it's a it's it's a totally different kind of poetry. Why why do this? Well we're shifting to riddling words, right? Um, uh, Christopher Tolkien calls this sort of the riddle contest. It, I mean, it's not in the Gollum and Bilbo sense, of course, of telling and guessing riddles, um, but it is riddling speech in the Bilbo and Smaug sense, right? Um, uh, you know, I came from the end of a bag, but no bag came over me, kind of. The, the, the kind of... Uh, telling the truth without giving away the truth that Bilbo does with Smaug is precisely what Felagund is attempting to do 
um, with Thu here. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's it's really it's really interesting that he signal. I mean, we can tell the breaking of the rhythm is I think really important here, as it draws our attention to how carefully crafted this is. Again, another reason why I get disappointed that although I like how the lines are crafted, the concepts don't seem to be so well crafted. That's why it bothers me because I feel like the big picture sort of conception, the big the big picture idea of the riddles. Um, the way that the not the way that it's done, but the what actually is being said in the riddles um, strikes me as, as I say, kind of disappointing, um, disappointing on both ends. Um, here's another interesting moment: the Orcs' creed that we get, right? Nereb looks fierce. Why is he looking fierce? Why is old Nereb looking fierce? Well, he's looking fierce because he, uh, um, he just they they uh, Thu just mentioned about how uh, Bulldog was sent out to get get Luthien to capture Luthien because you know, he just found out that Morgoth wants Luthien for some hideous and not explicitly disclosed, but almost certainly no quite certainly unsavory purpose. Um, don't forget that in the early days here, the gods, that is to say the Valar, have children. Um, they do, in fact, beget children. Um, so um, it does seem entirely likely, in fact, it's rather explicit in the Book of Lost Tales, that um that Morgoth, in fact, desires Luthien for breeding stock um, for himself. That is gross, Karita. I completely agree. Um, uh, <laughs> Josiah, this is, of course, the way to talk to werewolf lords. Exactly, exactly. Um, yes. So anyway, so Nereb, um, uh, uh, Nereb is looking fierce, and his frown is grim. I mean, he's got that, like, big, fangy, agape mouth thing going on, so it probably looks pretty frowny and grim anyway, but um, but again, the, the, the narrator's you know, little Luthien, what troubles him? Why laughs he not to think of his lord? It's sort of showing how, how, how Baron is also not really good in the acting department here, either. Neither Felagund nor Baron really um, uh, really making their mark as thespians here in this scene. Um, he should, if he were a real orc, apparently, laugh uh, to think of his lord crushing a maiden in his horde. That foul should be what once was clean, that dark should be where light has been. Um, that should make him laugh. That should make him happy. The more maidens crushed in Morgoth's horde, the better. Um, okay. So, having noticed this, uh, uh, Thu then goes on to press them to repeat the Orc's Creed. Whom do ye serve, light or murk? Who is the maker of mightiest work? Who is the king of earthly kings, the greatest giver of gold and rings? Who is the master of the wide earth, who despoiled them of their mirth, the greedy gods? Repeat your vows, Orcs of Bauglir. Do not bend your brows. Death to light, to law, to love. Cursed be moon and stars above. 
May darkness everlasting old that waits outside in surges cold drown Manwe, Varda, and the sun. May all in hatred be begun and all in evil ended be in the moaning of the endless sea. Okay. Um, yes, Sharon, greatest giver of golden rings makes us want to think of, of the ring of power, but we should not. No, we certainly should not think about the giving of the rings of power. Um, uh, no, the greatest giver of golden rings is merely a reference to him being a king and the distributor, you know, of great treasure. Uh, ring giver, of course, is one of the, uh, one of the common kennings uh, for kings in Anglo-Saxon poetry. Um, so, yeah, no, that was a, that was a thing. Um, it, uh, uh, it, it has nothing to do with rings of power except indirectly, and as much as the giving of rings and rings of power later on is kind of, uh, uh, kind of a play on this to some extent, but, um, anyway, okay. Um, What do you think about this? Okay, so the first half they could have bluffed their way through. Well, okay. A good actor could have bluffed their way through. I don't, I'm don't. i not confident that Felgund and Baron really would have made that work. Um, but uh, whom serve ye, light or murk? Who is the maker of mightiest work? So, uh, notice what what is the purport of these questions, right? Um where do the answers of these point? I mean, obviously to Morgoth, but that's not that's not what I mean. I don't mean literally or simply in that way. If these are the questions by which you evaluate the allegiance of orcs, it suggests that these are like the essential things, right? Um, these are the thing. These are the questions that Morgoth wants to be the answer to, right? He wants his servants to, to believe and to say that he is the maker of mightiest work. Okay, that makes sense. He wants, he wants to be recognized as the greatest and most powerful. All right, all right. Who is the king of earthly kings, the greatest giver of golden rings? Okay, he is the king above all kings. Okay, right, that fits with what we've seen. Who is the master of the wide earth? That's right, yeah, everything belongs to him. All the elves, elvish kings and everybody, they're just, in, they're just interlopers, right? Okay, who despoiled them of their mirth, the greedy gods? Yeah, who who, who darkened Valinor? That guy, right? Yeah, um, the greedy gods. Notice the spin there, right? You know, the gods were greedy and selfish. They were hoarding that light all to themselves, and he came and taught them a lesson, right? He, he showed them who was really who was really king of earthly kings, right? Not them, no way. He despoiled them of their mirth. Okay, um, so so right. Okay, this all seems uh, um, this all seems to depict uh, Morgoth, right, and his character and his own sort of priorities. Um, then we get to the the actual sort of creed itself, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, Nancy Fosberg says, in the theatrical productions in Nargothron, these guys uh, have to do the costuming and stay off the stage. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's clear that if uh, if uh, Felagund uh, were to be nominated uh, for an Academy Award, it would be in uh, costuming and makeup, not in... Uh, not for uh, best actor or supporting actor. Um, okay, but look at their vows now. 
Okay, right. Repeat your vows. First of all, vows? Seriously? Like they have a creed? This is interesting. This is kind of new. Um, the implication of repeat your vows... The implication to me is that this is something imposed upon them, right? That is to say, the implication seems to be orcs don't act the way that they do purely spontaneously, right? They do it because they have sworn a vow. Because they have this creed that they conform to, right? Um, That they hold to. That's interesting. That by itself suggests, again, all alone... Just without looking at the vows themselves, just hearing him say, repeat your vows, makes it sound like they have a will of their own, A, because they have to take a vow and then keep it and repeat it, right? Um, But also that their wills are not necessarily naturally and spontaneously inclined to the evil that the vow is going to describe, right? They have to be brought to do this. They they, they, They have to conform themselves to evil in this way. Um, so that, that's, um, that's, 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 that's kind of interesting. Um, okay, but more, let's look at the vow itself. Death to light, to law, to love. Cursed be moon and stars above. May darkness everlasting old... Okay, wait, let's start off with the first two. Death to light, to law, to love. Cursed be moon and stars above. Okay, okay, okay. So their vow is, they're vowing death to light, law, and love. Anytime any of those three things... So it's not just obey Morgoth's laws and that anybody else, but all laws, right? Laws are bad. Order is bad. Chaos is good, right? Darkness is good. Chaos is good. Hatred is good, right? That's their creed. Okay. So it's not love Morgoth. is not a love big brother kind of situation, right? Um, hatred is good. Chaos is good. So even the question of obedience comes a little dodgy there, right? Um, but anyway, okay. Cursed be moon and stars above. Well, that one's a little simpler, right? Okay, who likes the moon and stars, right? That seems a little easier to do. Okay. Um, uh, May darkness everlasting old that waits outside in surges cold drown Manway, Varda, and the sun. May darkness everlasting old that waits outside. So, darkness everlasting like the void? Okay, I guess. Outside? I assume he means outside of Arda, right? Um... Okay, uh, so in surges cold, so surges, I take surges, this is not, presumably not electrical surges, but like waves, right? So this seems to be a, a sea, an ocean image. He's imagining the sort of the ocean of darkness. Um, I can't help but think of Gollum's riddle here, right? Um, uh, this thing, uh, yeah, um, uh, comes first, follows after, kills life, ends laughter. Um, uh, empty holes it fills. You know. The, anyway, the darkness stuff. Um, 
so yeah, so yeah, they want the darkness to drown the good guys, because we're into darkness, not light. We're into chaos. So let's all of the orderly beauty of this world. Let's drown it all, right? Um, especially Manway and Varda. May all in hatred be begun, and all in evil ended be. Yeah, Arthur is thinking until the Dark Lord lifts his hand over dead sea and ruined land. Does sound kind of Barrow Whiteish, doesn't it? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, May all in hatred be begun, and all in evil ended be. In the moaning of the endless sea. And I take the endless sea there not to be literally the ocean, because that's presumably one of the things that's going to be destroyed, but the endless sea of the, the, the darkness everlasting old, probably. The darkness, the chaos. For darkness alone is worshipful, right? So said Sauron and Numenor, or so will Sauron eventually say in Numenor later on. Um, yeah... I have to admit, um, I've been accused on many occasions of always talking like I think Tolkien and all of his writings are perfect, and that I, I never have anything bad to say. One of the reasons for that is simply that I enjoy liking things more than disliking things, so given a choice, and I do have a choice, I can't talk about everything, so I will talk about some things and not of others. I generally choose to talk about the things that I admire, um, rather than just going through and nitpicking the things I don't like, um, as that makes you an unpleasant person to listen to, and eventually makes you an unpleasant person to be around. But, um, so... Anyway, anybody who thinks that will, who likes that will love this class, because I'm going to have to say again, I find this passage, I would have to say I find this passage also to be a bit of a failure, at least it doesn't all fit together. The first half there, who is the maker of the quest, the catechism he's doing there, who is the maker of mightiest work, who is the king of earthly kings, the greatest giver, um, that builds up one idea of Morgoth. And it's an idea which seems to be consistent with the way that Morgoth is depicted elsewhere. Um, he does want homage to be paid to him. He does He does want his laws. Remember, Barahir and Baron were called outlaws earlier on? Like, as if Morgoth has laws, which they're living outside of, and that's a bad thing, right? I mean... If this creed is actually consistently deployed throughout the story, Baron and Barry here should just be like, dude, we're like your best allies, right? We're all about chaos here. We're agents of chaos here in Tower of Fuin, so what's the problem, right? Um, yeah, Nancy and Thingol is a rebel. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's so... The whole, like, we are just categorically against light, law, and love... It's too simplistic. It's way too simplistic. Um, this um, this doesn't really seem to me to work. In fact, this is one place. I, you know, again, the one of uh, one of my biggest Tolkien criticism pet peeves that is 
things that people say about Tolkien that annoy me most and uh, high on my list of those things are, you know, the people who either have not read Tolkien or have apparently done a very superficial reading of Tolkien who say things like, oh, it's just everything is so simplistic and black and white, like everybody's completely good or completely evil. Um, And it's, no, you're not getting it at all. Um, I hate it when people say that. This passage actually seems guilty of that. This is seems to me sounds like a really, really simplistic, um, pure evil view. Like it's the you know it's the it's it's the it's the evil, it's it's the evil creed, right? But this kind of evil creed, it doesn't work. It doesn't hold true. Again, it's inconsistent even with what came before. If you truly hate all life, order, law, and love, then you can't even be effectively evil, right? I mean, if you just want annihilation for everything, then why do you exist and want to carry on existing, right? I mean, it's... It just none of it makes sense. Um, It just it doesn't make sense with the actual motivations of anybody. I mean, all good bad guys believe that they're the good guy, right? Even if they're wrong, they've worked. And again, Tolkien is so good at this uh, in the Lord of the Rings, right? Sort of showing the rationale that leads people down the path to the dark side, right? Um, You know, we see this in the we see this in the. uh, um, the the uh, you know the ring induced di- you know monologues by people in in the Lord of the Rings right, um, not just like I like hatred and evil for their own sake because they're awesome right like in what sense like it, it's like you can't even say it's it's a sentence which is actually kind of internally like in what sense do you like them can you say I love hatred that doesn't make sense you know so I mean it's it's in that sense I find it oversimplistic. Oversimplistic in the sense that it's actually unrealistic, actually nonsensical, um, in ways in which Tolkien's depiction of evil is never otherwise nonsensical in this way. So, I mean, again, like I can kind of see what he's doing. You know, I mean, we, you know, we have this like really awful-sounding oath, which of course Felagund, which sort of forces Felagund and, and, and Baron up against a wall. Right? They can't possibly repeat this stuff. Um, but, uh, um, but, you know, I, I, I just, it, it doesn't really sort of work. Um, yeah, a couple people, Jordan Sunderland and Yana, um, are both referring to, uh, uh, to the Joker, you know, the agent of chaos, uh, you know, the, the one who, who really seems to kind of hold to that creed, um. Uh, Jordan says, the only way for a villain to love hatred and evil is for him to be simply insane, like the Joker. Um, Morgoth is twisted, but not insane. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know, I mean, there are, you know, people are wanting to suggest ways in which, like, this could just be sort of a way to kind of, you know, brainwash orcs, or, you know, orcs are really dumb, so you have to kind of put things in really simplistic terms. And, and I mean, yeah, like, it can kind of work in that way, but I just, I don't like how it actually just to me points in a completely different direction. It's just, it's, to me, it's very discordant. Um, because it's like, that's not true evil. Uh, you know, that's, that doesn't, that's, it's, it's not even, it's not even sense. It is, Jordan, it is like, that's, 
that's not how evil people think. That's how that's how crazy people think. It's just it's not it, it's it's completely um, it's it, it, it's completely inconsistent. Um, so um, anyway, that's um, you know I, I'd again think about uh, you know Sam thinking about old stories and wondering if Gollum thinks he's the hero or the villain, right? Um, you know, Gollum, do you want to be the hero, right? Um, but sadly, he's gone off at the point in which, when he returns, he's going to pass the point of no return and be the permanent villain and have no more chance. But, you know, in that moment when Sam is asking Gollum that is the moment in which he has his last choice, chance, Gollum does, uh, to be a hero instead of a villain. But anyway, again, that question is being explicitly asked, you know, people believing that they are the good guys. Um, so, anyway, um, so again, I find this passage sort of uneven. All right, if I even get back to magic now, it's going to be a miracle. <laughs> All right, let's look at their. Let's look at the duel. When his flaming eyes he on them bent, and darkness black fell round them all, fell round them all. They only saw as through a pall of eddying smoke those eyes profound, in which their senses choked and drowned. Again, notice we have the power of the eyes of Thu, right? Again, um, we all recognize an old friend there. He chanted a song of wizardry, of piercing, opening, of treachery, revealing, uncovering, betraying. Then sudden Felagund, their swaying, sang an answer, a song of staying, resisting, battling against power, of secrets kept, strength like a tower, and trust unbroken freedom, escape, of changing and of shifting shape, of snares eluded, broken traps, the prison opening, the chain that snaps. Um, of course, this is the passage which is immediately familiar to all readers of the Silmarillion, right? This is the one part of the Lay of... Okay, okay, it's the second part of the Lay of Wathian that everybody knows. But the first part is only by accident, right? The first part that everybody knows is the uh, metal wrought like fish's mail, bucklers and corslet, axe and sword, and, uh, ch- and shining shield or laden horde, right? The, 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 the Durin bit there, the Thingol bit, that gets repurposed for Durin uh, later on. But this, in its genuine context, of course, gets into, this is the moment in the published Silmarillion when Tolkien just quotes the Lay of Lathian, right? He just um, transitions back into verse that seems to me extremely significant, right? That in this moment when he's depicting this magical battle between the two of them, it's almost like Tolkien throws up his hands and says, dude, you can't depict this in prose. Like, this is not, it's not possible to do the, the battle of, of, of Finrod Felagund and Thu Sauron um, in, uh, in, in prose. Right, you have to do it in verse. So he goes back to his original verse with some uh, emendations, but few. Um, most of these lines are very familiar and exactly the same as we see in the published Silmarillion. Um, which shows, of course, something that we were already seeing in the disguise passage, how essential song uh, and verse seems to be uh, to, um, to, to magic, right? to making things happen. Um, notice how their songs work here. Um, he chanted, that is Thu, chanted a song of wizardry, 
of piercing, opening, of treachery, revealing, uncovering, betraying. Um, notice the progression. So we get the song of wizardry, of piercing, opening, of treachery, revealing, uncovering, betraying. What happens in those two lines? Notice. I know if we do like a line-by-line analysis of this passage, we're never going to finish tonight, but I don't care. We're adding a week anyway. We'll take care of it. Right? Notice what happens. Notice. Look at the words. Look at the words. He is, the trend of it is, to st- he, he, he knows they're disguised. His whole point is to try to discover who they are to reveal them. Right? That's the substance of it. But look at the words. What's the difference between piercing, opening, treachery, and revealing, uncovering, betraying? Um, We've got... uh, He chanted a song of wizardry of piercing, opening, of treachery, revealing, uncovering, betraying. Um... Yes, good. James, they do the action. Go. I mean, we've got piercing and opening in that first line, right? Um, syntactically, they're all parallel um, uh, objects of the preposition, right? Of piercing, opening, of treachery, revealing, uncovering, betraying. But notice the flow of that. We get the two ofs in that second line, then the ofs disappear. And all we get are the actions, right? James, exactly as you say, the second line requires action from someone. Of piercing. So he's chanting a song of piercing, opening, of treachery. That second line is a description of the song. Revealing, uncovering, betraying. That's just a series of action verbs, right? Treachery, of course, is an, is a, is an actual noun, you know, at the end of that first line. In the second line, it's just actions with no... With that, although again, presumably, if you were actually diagramming this as a sentence, uh, revealing, uncovering, betraying would all still be, uh, you know, gerunds, which would be the object of the preposition of. Uh, but, but that's not the effect of the line, right? We sort of leave that behind, and it begins to be like this is because this is what the song is enacting. That's how these songs work, right? They are a song about something, but it's not just like. I choose for the theme of my... I'm going to sing a song about treachery, because I think treachery is good. No, it's... it's The song about this makes it happen. And in that third line, I think we see it happening, right? He sang a song of piercing opening of treachery, and what happens? Revealing, uncovering, betraying. These things start to occur, right? We have action going on. Exactly, Sharon. The effect of the song is in that third line. So, quick... We must counter because it's starting to take effect, right? Then Felagund, sudden Felagund, they're swaying. Notice that he is swaying, and I love the swaying rhymed with betraying, right? So we have the end of his, you know, the, his verb right there. What Felagund is doing, how it's in the same form, even though it's in a different grammatical structure, um, but it's still of the same fo- revealing, uncovering, betraying as a consequence of these actions, he is swaying, right? We see this something is happening. Um, it's not just. Uh, 
It's not just a song. Sang in answer a song of staying, resisting, battling against power, of secrets kept, strength like a tower, and trust unbroken, freedom, escape, of changing and of shifting shape, of snares eluded, broken traps, the prison opening, the chain that snaps. This is the description of what he is singing. But again, notice there's action that happens here, right? It's not just, again, syntactically speaking, this is all a description of his song. But notice how it happens. Notice what's going on here. Um, a song of staying. Stop. Stop that action that, that Thu was just doing, the reviewing, uncovering, betraying. Stop it. Resist it. Battle against it. Keep the secrets. Right? Hold strong with the strength like a tower. And then he sings of trust unbroken, freedom, escape. Right? We're, we're, we're going to move on. Right? From the staying and resisting. That's all well and good. Right? But let's segue from the staying and the resisting to the freedom and escape. Right? And of trust unbroken. He is trying to undo the, sus- the very suspicions of Thu. If Felagun's spell works, right? If, if uh, Thu's spell prevails, then they'll be revealed in their true forms. Revealing, uncovering, betraying. If Felagun's spell works, Thu says, these are not the droids I'm looking for, right? Um, he, you know, you, may, you, can, you can pass along. Um, that's, that's, again, trust unbroken. That's that seems to be what. Oh, oh no, I trust you, my dear orc friends. Carry on on your in your trip. Um, freedom, escape of changing and of shifting shape. That is, of course, Sharon, as you noticed, uh, an exact quote from the disguise song that he sang before. Right, so he, we see him um, explicitly refreshing his uh, his his disguising song. Right, uh, uh, disguising their faces. I love the uh, the rhythmic effect there. Notice how all around that one line, we have all those commas, see all those lists. Um, so the rhythm of the line gets really broken, of trust unbroken, freedom, escape. Um, it's not a flowing line at all. Of snares eluded, broken traps, the prison opening, the chain that snaps. Again, broken, rhythm, except of changing and of shifting shape. Nice fluid line in the middle there, right? And so I love how that kind of comes in um, to, um, you know, it's like, you know, again, it's, there's nothing to see here. These are not the droids you're looking for, right? It's, it's uh, um, his. So he's not just like sort of physically refreshing their their uh, their disguises, um, but um, um, but uh, uh, but again, it's it's the. The, the, the breaking up of the piercing and the opening and the breaking up of things um, is, uh, is what he's sort of fighting against with that like one single unbroken line um, but he does want to break some things right that's why the rest of his lines there afterwards are broken snares eluded broken traps the prison opening the chain that snaps so we see this other view right the chains that are looming in his future um, even, of course, some dramatic irony, 
his own death, which is going to be connected with a chain that snaps, right? Does he have some kind of premonition here? Some kind of sense of... I mean, certainly he has reason to dread prison and chains, right? Um, uh, yeah, good. Matthew, I think that's a good point. Matthew Hirschenroder says, I also see Thu's spells trying to work on Baron and Felagon's companions, trying to get them to betray their compatriots, as he explicitly does in the prison. You're right. And Felagon's song works to bolster their loyalty. Yes, yes, I do suspect that that is also true. Um... Yeah, good. Joyce uh, has a really great, um, uh, a really great point here. The magic of Middle Earth seems to me to be the rule of naming. She says the precision of words, the use of song or verse to add emotional power behind the naming. The naming of trust unbroken in Felagon's song is a precise naming of what he wants Thu to feel. In the Lord of the Rings, we get the, uh, you know, the, the, the lands or the kingdom's proper king when Aragorn names himself, essentially putting aside the Strider persona. I see Tolkien's precision with language as serving as the basis for all magic in his universe. Um, um, yeah, yeah, in a sense. I mean, I, I, I do think the... There's more to poetic language than than I mean, of course, as you as you say, than 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 precision. Though, again, precision does have to do with it here, right? They're both of them um, conveying these particular images, right? Revealing, uncovering, versus uh, snares eluded, broken traps, right? Secrets kept, strength like a tower, um, and whoever. Uh, Essentially, you know, Joyce, to use your language there, whoever sort of puts the correct name on the situation sort of wins, right? Um, backwards and forwards swayed their song. I like the repetition of the word sway, like Felagund was swaying, right? And now the song is swaying backwards and forwards. So we see, it, you know, first we saw Felagund swaying under the influence of Thu's power, but now we see the song itself swaying back and forth as they exert their power. Reeling and foundering as ever more strong, Thu's chellings, Thu's chanting swelled. Felagon fought, and all the magic and might he brought of elfiness into his words. Softly in the gloom they heard the birds singing afar in Nargothrond, the sighing of the sea beyond, beyond the western world on sand, on sand of pearls in elven land. Notice the shift in the poetry now. Instead of just those, all of those lists all of those sort of choppy concepts, now we're getting visual images, right? All the magic and might he brought of Elfiness into his world. What is the might and magic of Elfiness? What does that look like? It looks like this, right? We get the birds singing afar. And is it dark and gloomy there? Yes, it's dark and gloomy. But afar you can hear the birds singing in Nargothron. You can hear the sighing of the sea, not the chaotic sea of darkness eternal, but, you know, the ocean itself, part of this world. And beyond the western world, on sand, on sand of pearls, in elven land, the sighing of the sea beyond, so I can hear the birds. No, actually, I can hear the sighing of the, of the, of the waves on the shore. Oh, no, no, wait, actually, if you go further, you can hear the sighing of the sea on the sand of pearls in elven land. Right. Notice how it goes further and further west and, of course, shows the continuity between where we are standing here in the darkness and Valinor itself. Right. 
that's the world we're a part of here. This seems to be the might and magic of Elfiness to show this is this is our world. This is the Valar's world, and we are a part of that world. Um, yeah, Sarah, is he singing about the birds in the sea, or is that just the, the effect his words produce? It might be neither. He might be singing about birds and the sea. It's possible. Um, it's also possible that it's neither what he's actually singing about, nor the effect that it has. Um, the effect is, you know, that like Thu is sitting there being like, ah, oh, the birdies, right? But rather, it's an illustration but on the part of the poet, on the part of the speaker, you know, the narrator of the poem, um, rather than on the part of, of Feligund himself, to sort of try to capture. Um, what it says that Feligund puts into his song is the might and magic of Elfiness, right? So those next lines um, might be simply a description. Now, the, the they heard, in Gloom, they heard the birds. Maybe that's the companions, Right again, thinking about uh, Matthew, what you were saying. This is sort of a reminder to them, uh, in some sense. Again, is Thu hearing the tweeting of birds? I don't really know for sure, um, but he is certainly Josiah. I think it's a good way to think of it, um, drawing strength from those things, from the light and beauty beyond Thu's reach. See what you did there, Josiah? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. At the very least, that's certainly what's happening. Um, but again, it's more than that. We've got to think of the sw- song swaying back and forth. Um, Think of this as an artistic act. Think of this even as an act of sub-creation on Feligon's part, right? Um, it, this is almost like, very much almost like, a battle of two sub-creators. And remember, what a sub-creator does is try to create secondary belief in his, uh, in his listeners, right? Um, to get you to invest yourself imaginatively in the world that I, as sub-creator, am spinning out before you. That seems to be how Felagun's song works, right? Like he's trying to draw Thu into the world of his song, The Might of Elfiness. Recognize that you, this is the world that we're in. He is putting forward his vision of the world, the Elfiness vision of the world. Um, and attempting, and so winning looks like acknowledging Thu to come there, to go there, right? To invest that kind of secondary belief in it. But Thu counters, right? Then the gloom gathered, darkness growing in Valinor, the red blood flowing beside the sea, where the gnomes slew the foam riders, and stealing drew their white ships and their white sails from lamplit havens. The wind wails, the wolf howls, the ravens flee, the ice mutters in the mouths of the sea. The captives sad in Angban mourn, thunder rumbles, fires burn. Sorry, thunder rumbles, the fires burn. A vast smoke gushes out, a roar, and Felagund swoons upon the floor. Okay. Um, um, yeah, Nancy, the kinslaying story is definitely there. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by which version of the Kinslaying story. That is, I don't know which version you're thinking of, but the um, the the gnomes uh, being guilty of the Kinslaying uh, and stealing the ships. That's 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 it's definitely there. It's definitely there. 
Um, yeah, yeah, so Kimber exactly throws the kinsling uh, into Felgun's face. It hurts. That hurts a lot, right? Oh, Nancy, you're thinking of the different Galadriels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's much later. That's much later. Remember, Galadriel herself is a Lord of the Rings creation. So pre-Lord of the Rings, there is no Galadriel. So yeah, all of the Galadriel. We're not even up to Galadriel 1.0 yet, right? We're still... Uh, uh, Galadriel doesn't even exist in, in beta yet, right? This is, uh, this, is, uh, um, this, is, this is way earlier than that. Okay. Um, Thu, you see, is not only a powerful uh, singer, but finally he's cunning. I didn't like the riddling so much, but I do like the the, uh, the cunning here. Exactly, Kimber. The pearly sand shores have turned into a bloody mess. Yeah, it's almost like um, it's almost you know like he's uh, he's he's Felagundas played his ace right with the with the reference to the sand of pearls in Elven Land. Right, his his song. You know his his vision of the world is extending over to the Valar and to Valinor itself, right? Surely, in that inviolate holy realm, that's safe, right? And then Thu plays the trump card um, and trumps his ace um, by by not by resisting it, right? Not by saying, "Oh, Valinor, no, 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 let's not go there," right? Instead, he's like, "Oh yeah, Valinor, yeah, pearly sands, right?" Um, and the blood, the red blood flowing on that sand. Yeah, soaked in the blood of the people you murdered. How about that, right? Exactly, Sarah King says he enters the world of Elfiness and poisons it. Yeah, a lot like Ungoliant herself, right? Absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah, and Arthur, you're right. He's telling the truth that Felgund is skip, skip, sort of skipping over in his song of the wonderful world of Valinor. Absolutely. Um, it's that's it's it's why it has power, right? Because it's truth, almost as if you know, truth is a thing that has power, not just loving, you know, hatred and chaos and evil for their own sake. But anyway, whatever. Um, uh, by God's, um, uh, Jordan says, was Felagund at the kinslaying? Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, the question of uh, like who was coming up behind and not even really there—that's something that that it's it's that gets emphasized a lot more in the later versions. As I recall, I might be wrong about this, but as I recall, the earlier versions of the of the kinslaying, um, there's there's less there's less doubt and confusion um, and uh, less non. Participate. I mean, there are some who do turn, and this is mentioned in the published Silmarillion as well. There are some of the Noldor that turn and fight with uh, the Teleri in the published Silmarillion, the Solosimpi in the earlier version. Um, you know, the Foam Riders um, who fight with the Foam Riders against the Gnomes. That happens in the Book of Lost Tales version, but um, uh, but uh, but yeah, there's fewer people just get a you know can say like uh, like the. You know that Finrod's brothers say in uh, um, in the published Silmarillion, like, dude, we weren't even there, right? It's totally not our fault. Um, we came not red-handed. Um, anyway, um, it's not. It's not. Tolkien gives them a little bit more of an out as the story develops. Again, I might be misremembering, but I don't think so. Um, okay, good. Um, yeah, Kimber, right. Then Thu draws the imagery back across the sea 
to the darkness and awfulness therein. Yeah, Kimber, you see how it flows backwards, right? From here to Nargothron, to the shores of the sea, to Valinor, right? Oh yeah, let's go to Valinor. And let's come back across the sea, where the ice mutters in the mouths. Remember the Helcaraxa? Oh yeah, treachery, betraying, yeah. Oh, that was awful. Wasn't it just awful? Yeah. Oh man. And, uh, and then back here, right? I will counter your tweeting birds in Nargothrond uh, with, uh, with the mourning of the captives in Angband, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of awful. Um, yeah, Yana Felagon crossed the Helcaraxa. So again, it's another thing that he can't oppose. Right, um, yeah, treachery, betraying. He's he's, you know, is he to some extent guilty of it? Is he also the victim of it? Well, but in either case, he can't deny it, right? Um, and uh, recognize that he is himself the that you know that those images at the beginning of of trust unbroken and of uh, uh, of, of of freedom and of escape. The trust unbroken is dying an untimely death, right? Because trust unbroken isn't a part of his world. His, uh, again, thinking back to the language Tolkien uses in On Fairy Stories, right? The art has failed, right? Uh, the only way you can come to uh, trust unbroken is through willing suspension of disbelief, right? Secondary belief is gone now. Um, so through winds, right? Um, uh, I think it's... I, you know, I've always loved looking at this song carefully. Um, I think we can see so much going on here. Um, let me end with... Let me at least get back to the magic thing. And then... Yeah, it's okay. I'm okay with where we're... We'll, we'll pick up with Baron and Luthien and the, the breaking of bonds next time. Um, okay. Going backwards, thinking about magic. Now, so we saw uh, much more about how their songs work, and the argument that I have made would make about the connection between the music of their song, between the magic that's contained in the music of their songs and art, right? And how how close that seems to me to be to subcreative art. Um, well, back to sort of what seems to be more mechanical magic. Back to a uh, back to Luthien's spell. A magic song to men unknown she sang. Remember that the, the, there was a, the golden jar and the silver bowl with the wine and the water like brought by somebody like laughing at noon and the other one like by someone who's like weeping at midnight. Remember those the material components, right? A magic song to men unknown she sang, and singing then the wine with water mingled three times nine, and as in golden jar they lay, she sang a song of growth and day, and as they lay in silver white another song she sang of night and darkness without end, of height uplifted to the stars, and flight and freedom. And, and all names of things, tallest and longest on earth she sings, the locks of the long-beard dwarves, the tale of Draugluin, the werewolf pale, the body of, the body of Glomond, the great snake. That's Glaurung, by the way. 
the vast upsoaring peaks that quake above the fires and Engben's gloom, the chain and Gynor that ere doom for Morgoth shall by gods be wrought of steel and torment, names she sought and sang of Glend and the sword Glend the sword of Nan, of Gilim the giant of Eruman. And last and longest named she then the endless hair of Uinen, the lady of the sea that lies through all the waters under skies. Then did she lave her head and sing a theme of sleep and slumbering, profound and fathomless and dark, as Luthien's shadowy hair was dark. Each thread was more slender and more fine than threads of twilight that entwine in filmy web the fading grass and closing flowers as day doth pass. Okay. What do we see? What do you notice here? Thinking back to our discussion about magic and craft and and art and science and all of those things. Um, what do you notice about how Luthien's spell here worked? Um, Joyce, notice the naming? that happens here, the power of names. Um, she names all of the longest and tallest things, and that there's clearly power in that, right? Um, just by uttering the names of these things, that... So so notice there... there we should, we, we should review, review, by the way. What's she doing? What is the effect of her spell? Just make sure we're all remembering correctly. What is the what is what is she what is she what is she doing? Hair growth, yes, right. The magic formula for hair growth, right? It'd be very useful, right? I'm not going to try it though. Um, what else? That's the longest and tallest things, right? She, she she's going to do the 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 Rapunzel act, right? And and the slumbering, yes, yes. The magic uh, the magic sleeping hair cloak. Right, um, so we've got uh, we've got both of those, both of those. Right, the theme of sleep and slumbering, profound and fathomless and dark. Right, so that's that's the second effect of the. So the hair will grow super long and then have that power of putting others to sleep. Okay. Um, okay. So what do we notice? Observations here. Um, Kimber, I agree. Kimber Nelson says it's weird that so many of the things she invokes are evil or dubious. Um, it really is their longness that seems to be the key, not their qualities. Yeah, I mean, is it her fault that many of the longest and tallest things on world happen to be evil? Right? You know, like Glomond, the great snake, right? The, the dragon, Glaurung. Uh, Draugluin's tail. I didn't know werewolves had tails that were super long, but I guess Draugluin's tail is super long, or superlative in some sense. The the beards of the long beards, right? The locks of the long beard dwarves. Their beards were super long. Um, Tolkien described the long beards beards as having to go down and then like wrap around their waist a whole bunch of times. Um. So their beards are really long, those long-beard dwarves. They're pretty sketchy, too, those dwarves. Don't think of Thorin and Thrain and Thror. Think about... Um, think about meme. Uh, you know, the dwarves are, dwarves are sketchy creatures still. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Jordan says, in, if naming things makes the spell extra powerful, why isn't Thangoradrim named but only described? Good question. Good question. I've got a follow-up question for you. If the names of things make the spell extra powerful, and if we're talking about the tallest and longest things, why isn't Teniquitil, the holy mountain named, or Tim Brenting, as it is currently named? That's pretty tall, pretty powerful, pretty significant. Because that would be wrong, right? The naming of of Tim Brenting, the naming of of the of the holy mountain uh, in the oath of Feanor and his sons is one of the obvious signs of its sketchiness. Um, so it wouldn't seem to fit, I think, for Luthien to swear by that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, more, what else? Good, Arthur has an interesting observation about the evil stuff in her song. He says that uh, her magic is more effective than Felagun's magic. She incorporates both good things and evil things in her song, while Felagun was only singing of the good old days and left out the bad stuff, which, of course, uh, backfired on him. She was more honest than he was, and her song is mightier. Um... Yeah, and I would fight Sue. I think it's a great follow-up. Sue Gifford says, her naming the evil things makes her seem more powerful as well. The fact that she can turn evil things to good is a reflection of her extraordinary power and her depth. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll go with that. Um, that, that, that... I don't think we need to see this sketchy in the sense of, like, whoa, like, is Luthien crossing the line, right? Is she, uh... Um, you know, is she going all like, you know, Macbeth's witches on this thing, you know? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, she's not swearing by them, she's not conjuring them, she's not calling them or inviting their power, she's just naming them, right? Because they are superlative. Evil, but, um, but, uh, but superlative. Um, and uh, so there is, you know, Arthur, I like your idea of there being sort of more honesty there. Um, and Sue, your point about, um, uh, you know, that she's she can take the, the even something like the length uh, of, you know, the, the sort of the horror of, uh, of uh, what's it, Glomond, Glomond's body, right, and turn it into a, turn it into a, 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 a sort of use it, use it for good, not for evil. Um, yeah, exactly, Sarah. It's not so much turning evil things to good as just saying it is what it is. Yeah, it's not like she's converting Glomond into a good thing, right? But she is taking the fact of his existence. He does exist, right? Um, of of uh, uh, of evil, uh, one thing certain. Uh, if evil, one thing is certain that evil is, right? As Tolkien said in Mythopoeia, um, these things are facts, right? Um, and she states them. She recognizes them as facts. Um, yeah, yeah. So, that is interesting. I do think, so I, that, that, that's, that is a really sort of fascinating point of comparison there. Um, we can see that there is a sense in which her magic here is following the pattern that we saw with Felagund and Thu, that is, th that uh, sort of sub-creative 
thing, right? She is, through her naming of these really long things, um, and, you know, and her song about, you know, length, she is uh, sort of... So she's artistically creating a world, right? She's sub-creating a world in which all that length is connected with her hair, right? In which her hair is... And it works. It works and it comes to being. It, it's, it's, it is the... You know, and this is, uh, again, thinking back to unfairy stories and Tolkien talking about elf magic and fairy and drama, right? Fairy and drama being an art so convincing, a sub-creation so powerful that it engages people and they believe it to be the primary world. Right, it's indistinguishable from the primary world. Um, the, that's that's sort of what efficacious elf magic means. Presumably, this is what uh, uh, Felagun's face-changing magic also was doing. Right, he sang a song of changing and of shifting shape, and it took effect within the primary world itself. Right, art, elvish art, extended to its natural limit, to its natural extreme. Um, so I think we can see that artistic element. Now, what do you make with the... What do you make with the... Uh, of the of the material components? What about the... the, you know, the golden container and the silver container and the wine and the water and the laving her hair, right? She's washing her head in this water and wine. Um... Oh, cool! Yeah, James, that's awesome. Again, James uh, Lebach having a uh, or Lebach. I don't know where's the stress in your last name. Uh, first syllable or second syllable? Uh, anyway, um, uh, doing uh, sort of shows how she's taking all of the you know the most triumphant notes of the evil and weaving them into into her own design. Uh, the same way as James goes on to add, as Thu did with Feligan's song, right? Oh yeah, Valinor. Let's talk about Valinor, right? Yeah, that's really cool. First syllable, Lebach. Okay. Um, all right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sue Gifford says Luthien is really the uh, uh, Lebach. Okay, thanks. Uh, Luthien is really the ultimate elf. She's a rock star through and through. She is. She is. She's the best. Um, she's the best. Um, Arthur is wondering if there are hints of, uh, of 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 Catholic ritual with the the wine and the water. It's pretty faint, I think. Um, I mean, yeah, wine and water play important roles, but um, and a chalice. Well, yeah, but I mean, ritual, yes, Catholic, not particularly, right? I mean. I mean, yeah, you can go to the Eucharist with the wine, but where's the bread? And you can go to baptism with the water, but eh, it's it doesn't. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not kind of clicking into place for me. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't seem to really. I don't see any. I don't see any compelling reason really to go there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, one thing I would say from the components 
there seems to be a way in which she is taking mm, I'm trying to be I keep I keep pausing cuz I'm trying to be really careful in my choice of words here. Um I was about to say she seems to be drawing power from these things like from the this sort of the ritual water and wine here, which have been imbued with one in sadness and darkness, one with uh, um, joy and light. Um, But drawing power makes it... I mean, it's not like they're batteries that she's plugging into or something. Um, It's... it's, uh, I don't like that particular metaphor. Um, It's more like the names that she's drawing on... Um, there are these particular qualities, again, the the brightness and the light and the happiness of the one and the darkness and the sort of secrecy and solemnity and sadness of the other um, that she's taking and uh, um, and weaving the two of them together. As she's talking about, you know, both good and evil things in her list of long stuff, um, so, um, those things seem to be parallel with each other, which suggests that her relationship with the physical stuff, the, the material components, to use the to use Dungeons and Dragons language for this, um, uh, seems to be similar to her appeal to the names. Um, um, Yeah, Joyce says water and wine represent the two of the essential elements. Uh, they're closely connected with the world. Um, uh, water, of course, and wine, thinking of the, 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 the connection uh, through the vines to the earth, uh, fit in more into the sleep spell. Air and fire would not work as well. Right? Yeah? I mean, as, pres- as presumably neither would the names of like the smallest and most stunted things in the world, right? Which would be a fun list of things to make. Um, I bet Meme the Dwarf makes the list, but anyway, um, not his beard, just his, just his person. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, I think there are different ways that we can kind of think about the different qualities sort of associated with it, but it's almost like, um, again, I'm tempted to see a sort of a parallel between the, 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 the water and the wine and the, those images, or the concepts, rather, that um, we're getting thrown around at the, you know, betraying, opening, um, revealing, and, uh, uh, you know, freedom, escape, um, strength. You know, those, those, when those concepts were being thrown around at the beginning, the appeal to the water and the wine and all the other things associated with them seems to work in a kind of similar way, right? We start with those kind of free-flowing ideas flowing under this circumstance it's a liquid thing um and then uh and then on to you know move to more specific uh um sort of visual images i don't know um uh i don't know if any of this sort of makes sense again what i'm trying to do is just sort of look at the way that tolkien is depicting these magic spells happening and trying to see the pattern trying to understand how he is depicting all of this happening and both of these 
both of these later versions. Both the okay, it's not later. Luther, this is before the disguising, so only later in the sense that I put the slide later. But both Luthien's spell and Felagon's song battle with Thu, both of them seem to be much more explicitly tied with art. So kind of coming back to the discussion we we're having about art and craft and science and that kind of stuff. Um, none of this seems particularly crafty, right? Particularly scientific. Both of them seem very artistic, rather. Uh, much more clearly sort of in that camp. Um, and I come back to some of the observations that you guys were man, I forget who made which observations earlier on, but perhaps we are to understand the disguise spell in a similar way, right? That just as Luthien is sort of taking and adapting kind of the concepts or themes if that's the right way of saying it, from the water and the wine and the golden bowl and all of these things, um, uh, and using those elements within her song to sort of, um, you know, sort of draw her art from those things and, and to kind of resonate with those things in the secondary world that she's making, um, if any of this, uh, if any of that makes sense. Is Felagun doing the same thing, right? Orc armor, orc weapons, orc hair weave, uh, or wig, orc, um, you know, orc uh, uh, skin. He's taking all of that stuff and and saying, okay, now make orc face, right? Let's 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 kind of complete that picture. That makes sense. I mean, again, the language describing his song there doesn't explicitly suggest anything like that, but certainly coming as it does after Luthien's song. You know, maybe we have that as a model and think about it that way. Anyway, I gotta let you go. I'm keeping you really late tonight. I'm keeping you really late, and we only just got through half of my slides. Okay, next time we're gonna talk about Baron and Luthien escape from bondage, and I do want to get. I'm, my goal is gonna be to get up to Morgoth. Okay, and then, um, and the confrontation with Morgoth is essentially the end of what we get in uh, um, in the uh, uh, in the way of Lathian. It's gonna stop suddenly of course pretty soon after that as soon as uh, as soon as baron's hand gets bitten off that's the last moment uh, of the lay of lathian um so we'll 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 we'll, we'll we're going to work on getting through there next time and then after that we will look at not only the the sort of the appendices material of the lay of lathian uh, cs lewis's stuff and uh, sort of tolkien's later efforts but i also want to be kind of thinking towards the ending what hints do we get of the ending of this poem. Where is this poem headed? We don't get it. Can we see anticipations of it? Where are we going with this poem? Um, And we'll try to answer that question in the extended class, the new class after this. So the class on September 3rd, um, the extra bonus class. That's what we'll do. Okay? Um, And then we'll be done, and then we'll be moving on to our next book. Uh, which is uh, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So I'm looking forward to them still reading that book for the first time, enjoying it quite, looking forward to talking about uh, that with you guys. Uh, I'm about a third of the way through the book now, uh, my first time through, uh, uh, really liking it. Um, I very much like the conception of the book, but more on that later. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that next month. Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you later.